I do want to thank um, those words of encouragement, and thank you, Dina, for sharing that, and especially for your prayers. Thank you so much. It does mean a lot. And, and also, uh, Diana is spot on. Um, I don't make life easy for Linda. So, <laughs> and she makes it so much easier uh, in terms of not only pastoral ministry, uh, but just living life. Um, in, in fact, for some reason, I was thinking about this a little bit last night, not knowing that this would share this and don't know why I was thinking of it, partly because sometimes I can't sleep, so I have a lot of time to think. And part of that was, I am not an easy person to live with. I don't sleep very well. I'm erratic. I drink way too much coffee. I'm a driven person. And half the time, I keep Linda guessing as to what I'm thinking or feeling or what's going on in my head. And her patience and her uh, forbearance and grace is amazing. So, yeah, I would just give an added uh, uh, two, three, four, five votes, even though Quakers don't vote, to what Di said. So, um, if I do anything well, it's because of her. If I do any of this well, it's because of her. So, so last Sunday, uh, I talked about this um, idea of living in the way of Jesus. And I introduced this as to say that living in the way of Jesus, and to know Jesus as the way and the truth and the life, is not what I will call a transactional experience in the sense that I or you believe about Jesus and we get something good in return. It really is this relational experience where I choose to live in the same way that Jesus lived. I, and I trust this way because it has integrity to it and it is a life-giving way to live. And because of this, I'm able to bring life to the world in which I live. So to say it this way, if I choose to live in the way of Jesus in the same way that Jesus lived, I can trust that. And I always go back to this little phrase that I came upon sometime a while back where I just said to myself, Jesus' way really works. And that may seem obvious on the surface, but how many times have we thought the way of Jesus just does not seem practical? To love your enemies, to, to pray for those who persecute you, to reconcile with people. Those, the Sermon on the Mount, we look at that and we say, well, that's good and it's very poetic and it's very beautiful, but it's just not very practical. This is the real world. But if anybody lived in the real world, it was Jesus, who lived in this real world of people and of, 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 of hurting folks, of, of people needing love, of people needing compassion, of an occupying force who was constantly around him. And Jesus says all these things, so it must have worked and Jesus must have meant it. So to live in that way means to live in a completely counterintuitive, alternative way than what we would expect. But we kind of have to take a step back, at least I think, is to discover one more thing about Jesus, is how he based his identity and how he discovered his identity. And that in many ways it invites us to discover and base our identity in God's love rather than all the other attachments and false attachments that may come our way. Trevor Hudson is a Methodist pastor. Uh, quoted him before and I've shared some of his thoughts and he writes this and I really resonate with these thoughts. Quote, 
When the moment arrives to step away or down from active pastoring, I will be immensely grateful, he writes, if among the many whom I have pastored, there are a handful of men and women who say, quote, my pastor helped me to discover who I really am. He opened up my eyes to my own infinite worth and immense potential as a dearly beloved child of God. And I would say amen. If I could make that as sort of my motto or my mission, if when I step away from what I do, if there are more than a handful of people who say, Scott, help me to discover who I really am. He opened my eyes to my own infinite worth and immense potential as a dearly beloved child of God, and I was able to flourish in that. I would say, that's all I wanted. That's all I would ever want. You see, part of our human journey is that of discovering our identity. To that end, we attach our identity to significant moments, people, experiences, and achievements. Some of these can be helpful. Some of these can be traumatic. Life is not this perfect journey. We do our best to find ways to discover who we are, to, do, to, do, to discover who we are in reflection of all of this, in, in conjunction with all of this, and how this affects us. And the tendency sometimes, I think, is to base our identity on external experiences because they are the most tangible, and it gives us something to measure ourselves by. But this can be very shaky ground. I've shared with some of you folks the story, or my story, and so for some of you, you're, you're going to hear it again. But I think for others, it bears worth repeating because it reminds us or tells us about how in some ways we pick up our identity from things that are not necessarily intentional. So when I was in Iowa growing up as a, as a, as a, as a kid, we had just moved back there for the summer after being in Jamaica. And um, I was just trying to find some kids to play with. I was probably about seven years old, I'm guessing, 62, about eight years old. I'd never played baseball before. Uh, I played a lot afterwards, but I never played before. We played cricket in Jamaica. So I found these kids playing baseball in the park, and I actually remember it was with Carla, and you know, we were going to the park, and she said, why don't you just kind of go hang out with them? So I did, and I played, and I hit the ball, and what I didn't realize was I really wasn't doing very good. All I knew was I hit the ball, and I ran, and they seemed to put up with me. So the next day, I went looking for them, got on my bike and rode around my grandparents' neighborhood, and I found them in some of the kids' backyard. So I get off my bike, and I walk up to them there in Marshalltown, Iowa, and I said, hey, do you mind if I play? One of the kids who I suppose was the leader of the group came up to me and says, no, you can't play. You're no good. And I remember going back to my grandparents' house that afternoon or that morning and just crying, partly because I got rejected, Partly because I was given this message that you're no good. And what I discovered, or what I have begun to discover, is for years, my life's mission simply became of proving that statement wrong. I am good. I am worthy. So I would work hard to excel. I would work hard to achieve. I wanted to always be on the winning team. I was super competitive. And I had to win because if I didn't win, I wasn't what? Any good. So everything I did was about measuring my value and my worth and my competency. Now you can see what kind of shaky ground that's on. When I was in college, 
This was reinforced even more when I was cut from the baseball team my freshman year. I had a pretty good senior year in high school playing baseball. In fact, I had made all conference, and I thought, oh, play baseball in college, I'll make the team, it won't be a problem. But the competition was pretty intense. There were a lot of juniors, a lot of seniors, guys who are already on the starting nine. And so I recall the day I walked over to the gym. This is how they did it. You walked to the gym, you made this long walk on your own, you walked up to the athletic department, they had the list posted on the door, and you went down the list, and you went down the list, and you just looked for your name. I went down that list two or three times and my name wasn't on that. And I remember walking back to my dorm room and I basically asked myself this question, who am I now? Who am I now? I had completely, completely based my identity on playing, on the awards, on the merits. And now I was thrust into this world at 18, going on 19 years old, with no clue as to who I was. And what do I base my identity on? And I'll tell you, just to kind of extend the story out, that's been a lifelong journey. I'll be 57 this week. And at 57, sometimes it feels like it gets easier, but at 57, sometimes I still feel like I'm wrestling with this whole journey. So I say that to say Jesus had the same journey, if you will. Trevor Hudson again writes this about Jesus' search for his own identity, quote, he also needed to know who he was. He was not immune to this human quest for identity, or as someone else wrote, Jesus needed not once, but again and again and again at each stage of his mission and each crisis in his living and dying, a freshly confirmed knowledge of his own identity. Our scripture this morning that Marianne read in the Gospel of Mark tells of this moment when Jesus discovers his identity, not in his accomplishments, not in his miracles, not in his healings, not in his speaking truth to power, not even in his prophetic ministry, but simply in God's love. And it's this moment of this baptism for Jesus, a moment of transformation in which he discovers his identity deeply rooted in God's love, a love that recognizes Jesus as the beloved, a love in which God is well pleased with him. Hear again these words. And just as he was coming up out of the water, Jesus, he saw the heavens torn apart, and he saw the Spirit like a dove on him, and a voice came from heaven, quote, you are my son, the beloved. With you I am well pleased. Now, we'd say, this is Jesus. Did he need to hear that? Can I tell you something? You preach this passage at a men's retreat. Boy, you will be there for hours processing this with men, particularly especially if they never heard from their own fathers. You are my son. In you I am well pleased. We need to hear it. Our sons and daughters need to hear it. Jesus needed to hear it. I am convinced this is what carried him through all the ministries and the moments and the crises when he could go back to that moment and he could say my failure or my success or whether people love me or reject me is not based on anything I do. It's based on this. I, God loves me and is pleased with me. And sometimes that is all he could hang on to. There's many voices that call out to you and I today. Do better. 
You're not good enough. Try harder. You're a loser. You'll never get it right. No one likes you. No one is pleased with you. These are all the voices that sometimes come at us, and, and they, they play with our emotions, and they play with our soul, and we have to hear that one voice with you. I am well pleased. To live in the way of Jesus is to know that our lives are immersed in the love of God. And I use that word immerse intentionally, for it's another way to describe this word baptism that's in this passage. So, just very quickly, the word baptize in the New Testament is really from a word that is um, spelled B-A-P-T-I-Z-O, baptizo. Now, this is as much Greek as you're going to get from me, all right? But it really was an everyday word that meant to immerse in liquid. So, it's like cleaning vegetables or washing your clothes or, or putting your carrots or broccoli in water. You were baptizing the carrots and the broccoli. You were baptizing the vegetables. You were baptizing your clothes. You were just literally immersing them in liquid. It was just an everyday word. There was no religious ritual or ceremony originally attached to that word. It just was an everyday word. So when the early church began to use Baptism as a way to signify the dying and the rising up of the person in transformation and conversion in, in identification with Christ. They said, we are baptizing this person. Now, as a Quaker, this is where I always invite folks to see beyond the outward ceremony or ritual of baptism, which is what we do. We don't practice the outward sacraments of communion or baptism. We practice what we call the inward experience of it, the inward communion with Christ and this inward baptism, if you will. And what I invite people to do and, and, and simply experience is to have this vision of living your life immersed, literally immersed in the love of God. So what if each day we saw our lives immersed in the love of God? What if each day we saw our lives immersed in God's acceptance of us and affirmation of our lives? What if each day we saw our lives immersed in the reality that God is pleased with us just because we exist? You wouldn't have to do anything from here for the rest of your life. You, just because you exist, God is pleased. What if each day we saw life as an opportunity to speak and soak up that love rather than a day in which we're trying to validate our existence and prove we're valuable? What if each day we saw our identity immersed in God's love, affirmation, and acceptance of us, no longer attaching our identity to these transitory experiences and shaky realities? What if each day we just immersed ourselves in this all-encompassing, all-embracing love of God? David Benner, who is an author, writes this, In order for our knowing of God's love to be truly transformational, it must become the basis of our identity. Our identity is who we experience ourselves to be, the I each of us carries within. An identity grounded in God would mean that when we think of who we are, the first thing that would come to our mind is our status as someone who is deeply loved by God. And there are moments that it's sometimes it's all I can hang on to. When days don't go well, or weeks don't go well, or things don't go the way I wish they would have gone, or there's a little bit of success, or there's a little bit of failure, or I start getting in that cycle of feeling that everything I do measures my worth, everything I do measures who I am, I really have to just pull back and immerse myself in this reality that I am deeply loved by God. And then here's the key at least from my experience. To know our lives as immersed in the love of God is to begin to see a world 
immersed in the love of God. You and I see the world as we experience it within. You and I see the world as what we are within. It's easy to project what we are within onto the world. If I experience alienation within, I'm going to feel alienated from people. If I experience separation within, I'm going to see that with people. If, if I experience fear within, I'm going to see that on the whole world. If I am immersed in the love of God within, often I see that outwardly. Thomas Merton was a monk, American monk, a mystic writer, activist, poet, died a tragic early death, but he wrote this one day. He had this experience on a street corner in Louisville, Kentucky, and he wrote it down because here's what he experienced. In Louisville at the corner of 4th and Walnut, in the center of the shopping district, I was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I loved all these people, that they were mine and I theirs, that we could not be alien to one another even though we were total strangers. It was like waking from a dream of separateness, of self-isolation in a special world. And this sense of liberation from this illusory difference was such a relief and such a joy to me that I almost laughed out loud. I was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I loved all these people and they were mine and I theirs and, they were, and that we could not be alien to one another even though we were total strangers. Merton was so immersed in the love of God that he saw everyone around him in a much different way. And that he loved them all, even though he didn't know them. And not only did he love them, this feeling of being immersed in God's love completely did away with any sense of alienation he might have had with them. As I was driving up to the meeting house this morning, I was coming up North Main, making the donut run, fifth Sunday, you know. And so heading up to Krispy Kreme, and I was thinking about this quote, and I thought, you know what? I'm just going to look at everybody I see as completely immersed in the love of God. I just did this little experiment. And two things happened. Number one, I actually began to notice people because I was looking for them. And second, I no longer saw them as people, strangers to my own existence, but somehow we were bound up on a common humanity. The man walking up North Main with this bag in his hand, I don't know who he was, but just walking. The person in the car in front of me that cut me off at the stoplight, yeah, that was tough, but I tried to see them immersed in the love of God. A woman working at Krispy Kreme, and it made me wonder how long she'd been there, how early she had to get up, and how, how long she had to work today. And if she wanted to go to worship, maybe she couldn't because she was there working this early shift. And I just began to see everyone in this different experience. Now, I'm not saying I do that well every day. What I mean was intentionally, I began to look at life differently. And maybe the alienation we often feel, as I said, is simply the alienation we feel within ourselves. It's often called projection. We project onto others what we're actually experiencing within ourselves. So when we feel alienated from God and from ourselves, we feel alienated from others. But when we are connected to God and to ourselves, when we are at home with God and with ourselves and our identity, we are at home with others. We no longer fear them. We no longer feel alienated from them. And we no longer feel a deep separation. You know, this morning I came, um, got here about 8 o'clock, and I was bringing the stuff into the fellowship hall, donuts and some juice. And I had left a post-it note on the door. Um, 
yesterday or Friday that said, don't lock the door, leave it open until 3.30. Some people are bringing uh, stuff by for chicken pie day. I'll lock it at 3.30. I just told you a longer note than what was actually on the post-it note, but you get the idea. It was on the wrote it on ink, put it on there. I forgot it was on there. So it was up there Friday, it was up there Saturday, it rained on Friday, so I got it this morning, I thought, well, that post-it note's still out the door. So I ripped the post-it off, post-it note off. Would you believe that ink is imprinted right on the door now? I have left my mark. I thought, uh-oh, this can't be good. This will come up a monthly meeting for sure. And so I went out, I got a rag in the kitchen, I started scrubbing, 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 scrubbing. I can't, I can't even scrub this off. I'm gonna have to get white paint to paint over this now. There's this forever thing on the door that says, don't lock the door, leave it open till 3.30. Thanks, Scott. <laughs> but as I saw that, for me, I thought in that moment, maybe this is what it means to open ourselves up to this immersion in God's love. It gets so imprinted on your heart and soul. It never leaves. You are my son. You are my daughter in whom I am well pleased. That's how much God loves us. Man, it is such a simple message. Almost feels too simplistic, but I cannot tell you how life-changing and transforming it is. Because you begin to move into the world as who you are, as your identity grounded in God. You may take some risks. You may edge out there and be involved in some ministries of justice in a prophetic nature. You may speak your heart. You may speak your soul. And you do it with compassion. You do it with humility. But you may put yourself out there in a way that feels risky. But you know always the world's response to you does not define who you are. What defines who we are is God's love. And he says to each one of us, you are my child in whom I am pleased.